Welcome to this podcast on legacy and trauma, the human costs of conflict, and how they shape the landscape. Produced here at Queen's University Belfast, this is part of a series created in the University's Faculty of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences, focusing on the ideas and research of academic experts here at Queen's in relation to the study of conflict. I'm Richard English, Professor of Politics at Queen's University Belfast, and I'm joined today by Dr Laura Dunn and Dr Michael Duffy. Laura Dunn is Senior Lecturer in the School of Social Sciences, Education and Social Work at Queen's, and her research interests lie in three main areas, child health and well-being, early child development and social cohesion, and programme evaluation. She's a member of the senior management teams in Queen's University's Centre for Evidence and Social Innovation, and Dr Dunn is a fellow of that centre and also of the UKCRC Centre of Excellence for Public Health, Northern Ireland. Michael Duffy is a cognitive psychotherapist specialising in PTSD and complex grief and is director of the specialist MSc Trauma in Cognitive Behavioural Therapy at Queen's University. He's a member of the UK Trauma Council and led the work and research of the trauma team after the OMA bombing of 1998. His research has included trials of trauma-focused CBT for victims of the Northern Ireland Troubles with chronic mental health problems, and he's provided workshops on PTSD for therapists working with large-scale traumas, including the 9-11 attack. I'm going to start the conversation today by asking Laura about one of the important ventures in which she's involved relating to childhood development. Laura, could you tell us something about the Lynx Group, what it is and what your work with the group has involved? Thanks, Richard. We are funded by the National Institute for Health Research. Our full title is a bit wordy, the NIHR Global Health Research Group on Early Childhood Development for Peacebuilding, Queen's University, Belfast and Lancaster. So we shortened that to links, which we thought was a little more snappy. We're an international research network committed to supporting the development and evaluation of early child development programmes in low and middle income countries that have been impacted by conflict. This work grew from research carried out here and led by Professor Paul Connolly, now at Lancaster. Together and with Dr Sarah Miller here at Queen's, we manage the links project. Our work is driven by a belief that early childhood development programmes can not only play a key role in contributing to sustainable development, but can also make a significant contribution to social cohesion or peace building. We all know that investing early on can pay dividends in terms of improved social health and economic outcomes for children. And this is supported by much research, such as the Heckman equation, which shows that there's considerable return on every dollar spent on early childhood investment. We're interested in how focus and investment in these early childhood services can build and sustain communities that have been impacted by conflict. To support this, we work in strategic partnership with UNICEF and with universities in each of our partner countries. And our work is supported by global ECD experts at Yale Child Study Centre, the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, NYU Global Ties for Children Centre and Closer to Home, Early Years, the Organisation for Young Children. We're currently working with local researchers and NGOs to support the development and evaluations of ECD programmes in six low and middle income countries, Timor-Leste, Vietnam, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Egypt and Mali. And in addition, since we started, we've already extended the network to include Colombia, Palestine and Israel. Of course, the nature and focus for each ECD programme is different and reflects the particular context and needs for each country. 
Indeed, one of our first tasks was to ask researchers in each country to prepare a situational analysis uh, to outline key priority areas for research in their own context. Whilst each programme differs, they all seek to contribute to social cohesion. That's how investment in early childhood development services can lead to social cohesion and sustaining peace in countries affected by conflict. And while I work across all countries, my day-to-day focus is on Timor-Leste and Egypt. Thanks very much. And, and you you mentioned some of the international partnerships that you're involved with there, Laura, and capacity building is central to the work and to the networks. I mean, you referred there, for example, to Yale and Harvard as being among the partners. Could you say something about the challenges, but also the necessity of such international partnership work in your field? Yes, we decided that it was important to engage researchers from each country to drive our work and build in-country capacity. We also hope that this would mean that we can extend the programmes of work beyond the time span and scope of the current funded project. To achieve this, we appointed three researchers to work full-time on each of our country teams for the duration of this phase. Twice a year, we all gather in one place to take stock and learn from each other. We've had five of these meetings so far in Brussels, two in Belfast, uh, one in Harvard, one in Yale. And our next is scheduled, hopefully, to take place in Osh State University in Kyrgyzstan later this year. And this is where our strategic academic partners have been immensely helpful. Harvard has provided training and individual advice to our country teams around measuring social cohesion in particular. They've also guided us to house our measures and data in a global repository called Kobo Toolbox, which makes all that we do freely available to researchers all around the globe. Yale has provided training on the importance of fatherhood in conflict-affected societies and how biomarkers can be used to measure and monitor stress. Our partners in the NYU Global Ties Centre, who won the MacArthur 100 Million and Change Award, are experts in education in crisis and have also provided ongoing support and training to our group. In an overarching way, UNICEF, both in the New York headquarters and in the country offices, have provided um, invaluable help in opening doors to key organisations and stakeholders in each of our countries. The expertise of these world-leading researchers feeds into our day-to-day work, but from a bigger picture point of view, they help us build capacity. Their input has been key in helping with the design of our research and skilling us all up in their areas of interest. In terms of challenges, There are some obvious challenges in moving a large number of people from around the globe to gather in one particular location, including securing visas, accommodation, dealing with expenses. And that's why a full-time administrator in a project like this has been essential. From an infrastructural point of view, other challenges have included contracting institutions to join our team. This has taken longer and been more onerous than we expected, but we now feel we have a blueprint to work from. Communication can be challenging at times, so we set up a system of management where the three of us on the core management team look after two countries each and our research team at Queen's have responsibility for day-to-day work on specific countries too, meaning that someone always has an idea of what's happening in a given project at any time. Keeping on top of programmes of work across the countries and ensuring that key expertise is drawn on can present another type of challenge. We have a schedule of meetings set out in advance with all of our academic and country partners, although time zones can make it difficult for everyone to join during sociable hours, so we take turns in drawing the short straw. Thank you very much. Michael, some of your work has involved analysing the outcome data of organisations that provide 
psychological services for victims of the Northern Ireland Troubles. This is clearly vital work, but it must involve particular challenges in such a contested and painful and sharp-edged context as the legacy of the Troubles in the North. Could you say something, please, about the challenges here and how you've overcome them? Uh, Yes, Richard. Um, I think undertaking research uh, in the context of uh, intergroup violence or community conflict isn't easy. Um, And it's particularly not easy if you're trying to measure the effects or the the psychological effects or the impact this has had on the population. Um, For many years... um, uh, the government, the, the, the state and uh, uh, those affected by the conflict um, really were very willing to talk about the clear effects on those who were physically injured. And that's because they were obvious and measurable. If you lost a limb uh, as a result of an explosion, if you had a, a serious injury uh, due to a, a bullet wound and so on, they were obvious uh, and they were easy to identify. So... There was a degree of empathy and understanding and recognition for those victims. But for those who suffered from the hidden injuries of psychological injury, um, there wasn't always the same understanding. And indeed it took many years uh, for uh, researchers such as myself to make a case to government that there were conditions such as post-traumatic stress disorder that uh, needed to be recognised and the disability of such conditions needed to be acknowledged by government and others. Um, and thankfully, you know, over time, uh, and uh, as a result of studies from across the world, uh, such as the work in the USA with the veterans coming back from Vietnam and so on, recognition was built up. And so in the 1980s and into the 1990s particularly, uh, we recognised conditions such as post-traumatic stress disorder um, and began to do research on those sorts of uh, problems. But nonetheless, uh, that was just the beginning of the um, struggle to try to get research going. Um, uh, And one of the reasons, of course, is that uh, in a a society like Northern Ireland, that it came through 30 plus years of conflict, there were opposing different narratives uh, about how you define a victim, for example. uh, one person's victim was another person's uh, freedom fighter. One person's ex-combatant uh, uh, was another person's terrorist. And so even within groups, the many groups that were funded to help the victims of the trouble, uh, for a long time there was a, a real struggle to uh, try to get some agreement about terms and definitions. That still uh, carried through even until recent years, uh, when uh, government are now looking at a, pen- a pension for those affected by the troubles, uh, and we have a big debate that's still running about whether or not someone who was engaged uh, in an act of violence during the conflict is entitled to be recognised as as someone who's a victim of the troubles. So, so this different set of narratives um, also made it very difficult to undertake research. I think that the focus that we adopted in our own research group was to continue to argue that if someone was suffering from either physical or psychological pain and they made their way to our clinics, they would all be regarded as clients and patients regardless of the causation factors associated with their problems. And so too in relation to research. Uh, We're primarily interested in understanding how conflicts affect people's health and their mental health and develop therapies and treatments that are effective in helping people to recover. 
And over time, those arguments, I think, have, uh, have got through. Uh, and so that we're now uh, able to gather data uh, uh, from uh, uh, groups uh, and from statutory organisations as well uh, that are providing services and have provided services for victims. And in addition to your work here in Northern Ireland, you've also worked extensively in relation to trauma elsewhere, haven't you? For example, in the US, in England, in Norway. How far are the differences of setting, the differences of context, the differences of response in different places greater than the similarities? Or are there things that echo between cases which outweigh the differences between those different settings? Yes, uh, I think that this is a good question again, because um, a context does matter. It matters in terms of the, for example, if people are caught up in a huge single incident, uh, uh, where lots of people uh, die, then how people adapt to loss, how people grieve, the rituals that they use and so on differ across the world. And so in our work that we've done in many parts of the world and in our workshops that we provide on how we respond to PTSD and complex grief, we have to recognise those contextual differences. Um, for example, uh, one study that uh, uh, in, in Japan showed that a culture where there's stoicism and you know the stiff upper lip that's quite uh, important, uh, particularly for men, impacted very strongly on men's ability to acknowledge that they were suffering and that they needed help. Uh, we know from uh, studies of soldiers returning from overseas, um, again looking at the, the, the Veterans Association in the States, the initial tolerance that uh, soldiers receive when they come home can fade and uh, social perceptions of the wars and the conflicts can change and that initial in uh, tolerance can change to intolerance and so the context then has an impact on the uh, ability or uh, of those individuals to seek help or to acknowledge that they're suffering. So context matters um, but there are very important similarities. Uh, Post-traumatic stress disorder for example presents with the same core features, whether you're in Africa, Asia, Europe or America. Uh, the core elements of uh, distressing intrusions, uh, intense emotional distress, high levels of arousal and then a whole range of avoidance mechanisms that people employ to try to suppress these symptoms essentially present the same across the world. So it's really helpful now that we have got uh, recognised international diagnostic manuals uh, because that helps us uh, standardise the cluster of syndromes that appear, uh, uh, we agree on what we're looking for and then as researchers we could try to, to discover how these uh, different conditions present in different societies and more importantly what treatments we can develop to help people recover from these conditions. Thank you very much indeed. Laura, your childhood development work has also involved the examination of diverse case studies in different global settings. If there are family resemblances or similarities between these different cases in terms perhaps of the problems that arise, but maybe echoes also in terms of some of the solutions and answers, could you identify on the basis of your expertise the most important of those things that are, in a sense, cross-case that transcend the different global settings you've had expert engagement with? Yes, uh, one of the key aspirations of our work is the development of an interactive logic model that depicts the overarching pillars of our work 
on what components are most important in terms of improving child outcomes and peace building. This model depicts what ingredients and investments are necessary to implement ECD programmes and what outcomes we can hope to achieve. Some of our programmes focus on early education or child development and several have parent education strands. However, the common thread that runs through all of our programmes is social cohesion. That is how we live in peaceful coexistence within and among social groups and the institutions that surround them. The domains of social cohesion that we explore in each context are trust, community engagement, social relations, support and solidarity and identity, belonging and inclusion. A good example to illustrate this is our work in Timor-Leste. Timor-Leste is one of the world's newest nations, finally gaining independence in 2002. Throughout an extended history of occupation by the Portuguese and then Indonesia, a lot of damage was done. Communities became entrenched in their own municipalities and people lost trust in the establishment. Children became a casualty of the troubled history. Less than 20% attend preschool of any kind. Almost half of the children are stunted in their growth. Many are not registered at birth. And there's about 70% open sanitation in the capital city of Dili. From a health and education point of view, we have a long way to go. We are currently evaluating the impact of a new community-based alternative preschool model, which has been ruled out where there is no existing preschool provision. Hundreds of children in Ermira and Vikek are experiencing this new model and a parenting support programme runs alongside the preschool to improve parenting practices. Aspects of the parenting programme include the importance of early stimulation, nutrition, positive discipline and hygiene. Communities play an important role in the running of new settings, which are led by volunteer facilitators from within the community. This model brings together families and communities around investment in the education of their young children and enhancement of their own parenting practices. The community lead decisions around the schools and liaise with those in positions of power directly. There is still a long way to go, but this model seems to have resulted so far in community buy-in. We are measuring child development outcomes and social cohesion in both children and caregivers. Of course, we have similar evaluations going on in all of our links countries. And overall, we hope this work will provide a global evaluation and measurement tool to support early child development for social cohesion programming available on an open access basis. We hope to contribute to the international evidence base on early childhood development for social cohesion and make a real difference to the lives of children caregivers and communities in our partner countries. Thank you very much. Uh, Michael, we're in a particular kind of crisis now as we speak amid the COVID-19 pandemic and many people have been finding that traumatic and possibly that's going to increase. I know it's hard to predict with any certainty but given your expertise could you say something please about what you would see as the potential mental health effects of the coronavirus crisis? Yes, this is a, a very important current issue, Richard. Indeed, we have a, a, a research proposal that hopefully is, uh, is being approved at the moment to try to study the impact of this, uh, particularly amongst health service staff who have been working at the front line. Uh, and uh, so there is emerging data uh, from China and in Italy and other countries uh, as to the psychological effects. Um, one large study in China 
uh, found that 54% of uh, respondents rated the psychological impact as either moderate or severe. Um, and in a large uh, study in Italy of 18, 1,800 people, uh, they found really high rates of uh, post-traumatic stress. 37% uh, reported PTSD-type symptoms. 17% reported de uh, symptoms of depression and 20% uh, other forms of anxiety. So those are indications of what I, th I think that uh, we're likely to see. Um, studies over time we, of natural disasters show that there is quite a, a range between uh, 5 to 20% of uh, rates uh, within populations of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I think that there are some features of uh, this particular pandemic which will be difficult for people to adapt to. Um, those in quarantine are particularly vulnerable. Indeed, other studies now emerging from China show that uh, quarantine was a key factor in predicting uh, PTSD. So the longer the social isolation uh, uh, has to be endured, which we understand is necessary, of course, but the more it's likely to be linked to people becoming isolated uh, and developing uh, negative uh, uh, beliefs about themselves, uh, the world around them and, and moods uh, disorders are likely to emerge. So uh, a quarantine, I think, will be one factor. Another factor I think that's particularly linked to this, uh, this pandemic is the issue of how the bereaved will cope with these very unusual circumstances in which they're trying to um, adapt to the loss of their loved ones. Um, I suspect we will find there will be uh, quite high rates of complex grief emerging. Uh, normally when we lose someone in less traumatic circumstances, we can acknowledge the loss. Uh, we can engage in very important social rituals uh, in our society. Wakes and funerals are very important. And these are really important in helping the bereaved uh, adapt to the loss uh, and incorporate the loss of their loved one into their lives uh, and, uh, and draw in the social supports that they would typically do so. There have been quite fundamental differences to how people have had to adapt to the loss of a loved one in these circumstances. Often in hospitals where they're not allowed to visit their loved one, having to listen to and communicate their last words through the third party in the form of the nurse sitting alongside the person who is uh, uh, dying from COVID-19. And these circumstances, I think, will very profoundly affect many people and uh, render it more complicated and difficult to adapt to the loss. So I think that uh, in the weeks and months ahead, we may well find that uh, many people who have been traumatically bereaved in this manner uh, will require help from our colleagues and staff in our mental health services. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a really fascinating discussion today with Laura and Michael. What I've taken away from particularly listening to their expert views is a combination of things. The incredible significance of the problems and crises and legacies that they're talking about. They're really world significant topics. They've got contexts which are very different around the world, but a lot that's shared between them in terms of the problems that present and in terms of some of the very important responses and practical responses that have been devised by scholars and experts like Laura and Michael. And as we've been hearing, there are particular Northern Irish aspects to this. Uh, but while they're global problems, we've also heard very much that there are 
very strong aspects of expertise and skills here uh, at Queen's University Belfast which are addressing these enormously significant issues in ways which relate to our society here but also elsewhere around the world. So in closing today's podcast I'd just like to say a profound thanks to Laura Dunn and to Michael Duffy. Thank you very much indeed. Please rate and review and share this podcast.